Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel 44. Tonight we're going to finish up what we call one of the major prophets. Let me just take a moment and explain the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets are simply called major because they have more chapters. Isaiah has 66 chapters. Um, Jeremiah has 52, and Ezekiel has 48. Uh, We'll be beginning, but it's sort of a different season that we're entering into because we're finishing the book of Ezekiel, getting ready to start Daniel, but then very shortly it's going to be Good Friday, and then Easter, and um, we're probably going to uh, be beginning Daniel on Sunday mornings, after the holidays, and we'll might have uh, maybe one Sunday before where we just do uh, what the Lord did that last week before He was uh, taken to Calvary, and lead up on Wednesday to Good Friday, and then carry that through to uh, Easter Sunday. The following week, of course, we have our, our 29th annual um, Great Lakes Pastors and Leadership Conference. And so we'll have special speakers. Um, uh, Chris Quintana will be taking one of the sessions. I think Charlie Flores will be taking the other one, if I remember right. So we can't start Daniel that Sunday. <laughs> but we'll be probably looking at the first part of, of um, May, where, where we'll be diving into uh, the book of Daniel on Sunday morning, and then Revelation on Wednesday evening, and try to dovetail those together. As we look at these chapters tonight, the last ten chapters of the book of Ezekiel deal with one subject matter, the events, uh, the activities that are going to take place during the the kingdom age. And it has a temple. We We studied that last week. In chapter 47, we're going to talk about the river that flows out of the temple. And um, then we'll end the book tonight talking about the division to the uh, 12 tribes and their dimensions. And we have uh, uh, maps to put up on the screen uh, so that you can see that. On Sunday, last Wednesday, we didn't make it through 44, so our text on Sunday was, if you want to go to chapter 44, the duties of the temple priest... Our text really revolved around the whole thought and the idea of not so much what they did, but how they did it. And the point that we made on Sunday that the work of the Lord in verse 18, they were to be clothed in linen, atop of their head, their clothes. They were not allowed to wear wool because with that uh, came the possibility of causing sweat. And of course, if you were here, the, the main idea of the Lord's nature, how he did things, how he conducted himself, um, was come and learn of me, because I'm um, simple of heart, meek in spirit. And it's to be done in such a way that would be opposite from James and John, who he called sons of thunder. (laughs) They were young. What is it about being a young Christian? The Bible says you have a lot of zeal, but no, no knowledge. So here's James and John, a lot of zeal, able to um, uh, get hot under the collar real quick. And when people didn't want to listen to them, be like Elijah, the Lord just called down fire on those guys. I'll, listen, I'll teach them. 
Well, you know, the thing about growing older in the Lord, and I use the example of Paul on Sunday, is that he was a consent to murder of the first martyr, Stephen, and yet his final self-evaluation of himself was that, that he was the chiefest of sinners. And I attribute that to only one thing, and that is that the longer you walk with the Lord, I think of guys like Paul Smith. Here's a guy who's gonna, he's 87 now. He's one of the sweetest guys on the planet. You know why? He's walked with Jesus his whole life. <laughs> That's why. And you become a, I think you become much more aware of your sinfulness, like Paul, and much more aware of God's grace. And that, that is the only way that I think true humility can be formed. I don't think you can conjure up humility. Um, Isaiah was humbled when he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, uh, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And then he said, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I hang out with people who have unclean lips. But that awareness wasn't there until he was in the presence of God. So the only way that I think people can truly be humble is they have to have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The closer you get to him, you realize how bad you are, and how holy he is. Good place for an amen. So we try to make that point on Sunday that if you're going to serve the Lord, it's the Lord's work, it's not our work. It is not to uh, um, be, oh, I just can't go on anymore. You know, the work of the ministry is so hard. No, it's not. Not not if you follow the simple model that we laid out on Sunday of Acts 2, verse 42 being in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers, and hanging out with each other, loving on each other. And then the Lord said he would add to the church. No sweat. It's his work. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. There's a lot of churches. they got a lot of things going on, a lot of activities. And um, the Lord's not even there. The Lord might have been there at one time, but he actually told the church of Ephesus, um, you guys don't get back to your first love, I'm I'm out of here. I won't be in a church. I will remove that candlestick. Wow, that's a pretty heavy statement. Um, Like the old Peter and Gordon song for you guys from the 60s, I won't live in a world without love. I won't live in a church without it either. So you can have the mechanism, you can have the programs, you can have all those things going on, and the Lord might not even be there. And that's why... Um, there's going to be a lot of surprise Christians who think they're Christians someday who are going to stand before the Lord, and he goes, who are you? I don't know you. Depart from me. Yeah, but but Lord, don't you remember? We did all this, we did that and that and that and that. And he says, yeah, but you never knew me. There was no relationship that was there. And I'm thinking to myself, if I don't get started, we're not going to make it. We're going to finish this book tonight. So... In summary of chapter 44, it is titled The Duties of the Temple Priest. And what we took out of it on Sunday was this idea of of the main part of their responsibility in serving the Lord was to be done in such a way that uh, there wouldn't be um, sweat that would be caused. And basically... um, 
I'm going to leave uh, that for tonight and go right into 45, and I'll start with the first eight verses. Now that they've dealt with the service and how to conduct themselves in service, now um, the land that is going to be given to the priest during this 1,000-year period of time. Now let me remind you that before um, the, the flood, that and there was longevity of life that over time, slowly, uh, Methuselah was, what, 969, something like that. Um, Adam lived into his 900s. And time, by the time you get to Abraham, we're down to 125. And then by the time David is writing the Psalms, he said a man's life is three score and ten, so 70 years old. So if you're 70 or above, you're on borrowed time. <laughs> You've been allotted 70. So as we get into the kingdom age, longevity of life will once again be restored. Where it says, you know, a baby, a young kid will die being 100 years old. Well, that's, you're just a young kid at 100. And that's the way that um, your age will be determined um, during this period of time. So these priests, um, we read in verse 1, moreover, when you divide the land and by lot into inheritance, you shall set apart a district for the Lord, a holy portion of the land. Its length shall be 25,000 cubits, and its width 10,000. It shall be holy throughout its territory all around. Of this there shall be a square plot for the sanctuary, 500 by 500 rods and 500 cubits around it, and an open space. So this is the district you shall measure 25,000 cubits long, 10,000 wide, and it shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be a holy portion of the land belonging to the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary, who come near to minister to the Lord. It shall be a place for their house and a holy place for their sanctuary, an area 25,000 cubits long, 10,000 wide, shall belong to the Levites, the ministers of the temple. They shall have 20 chambers as a possession. You shall appoint as the property of the city an area that's 5,000 cubits wide, 25,000 long, adjacent to the district of the holy portion. It will belong to the whole house of Israel. Uh, Now let's just stop there, and what I'm going to put on the screen is a map that I'm going to bring up again when we get to chapter 48. And I want to draw your attention to the white portion here. So here's the map. Um, We have the key to the map. Uh, The portion in white is the land that we just read. That's going to be designated. Um, As I look at this map and I look at where Jerusalem is, it would be on the Mediterranean where the modern city of Haifa is today. Uh, Joppa would be in this portion um, because Joppa is very close to um, um, Haifa. And what we have here, the very center of it, is the sanctuary where the temple that would be in Jerusalem. And uh, it, 
if you can see where it says the L, the Levites portion, well, they have to live somewhere. And this is what we've just read in the first six verses. We've read the dimensions, how they're laid out. And um, I I thank the Lord for maps. You know, again, a picture really helps us wrap our head around what what we're reading, especially with all the numbers. And uh, I'm going to leave that up just for a bit because now we're going to talk about the prince's portion in verses 7 through 8. The prince shall have a portion on one side and the other on the holy district and the city's property and bordering on the holy district and the city's property extending westward on the west side and eastward on the east side. The length shall be side by side with one of the tribal portions from the west according to the east border. The land shall be his possession in Israel, and my princes, plural, shall no more oppress my people, but they shall give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. So we went from the prince to the princes, and if you look um, here on the map, well, before we do that, let's go back to chapter 34 of Ezekiel. We've read this several times over the last uh, several weeks. But um, who is the prince? And I'm very confident that it's going to be David because of these verses right here. Um, In verse 23 of chapter 34, it says, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord will be their God, my servant David, a prince. There it is, a prince among them. So as I connect these dots, and um, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father, there is no temple in our home, which is the New Jerusalem. Um, David is acting as the prince. Notice, I'm glad they use, it's not king actually, but a prince among them, I the Lord have spoken. Now if you go back to the map, where we find um, the P, we find the prince's portion. And then we're going to have the priest portion also of, um, of, of um, Zadok, uh, their area there in part of the temple. So let's go back to our text back in chapter 45. We've made it through the first eight verses. Basically, what we've done from 44 to 45 is in chapter 44, it gives us great detail on what they're to wear, uh, their ministry, what what it involved on a day-by-day basis. And um, 45, in contrast, is now telling us for the thousand years their property. And if you have property, it's your property. You have a deed to your property and so on and so forth. And it's yours. One of the great scriptures that we're going to read tonight is um, whose land it really belongs to anyway. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So um, when we get to verse 9, we go from the borders from where they live to the offerings that they will present during this period of time on a regular basis. So in verses 9 uh, through, well, let's take it up to, I want to 
take a look when we get to verse 22. So let's read up to verse uh, 18, I guess. Thus says the Lord God, Enough, O princes of Israel. Remove violence and plundering. Execute justice and righteousness. And stop dispossessing my people, says the Lord God. You shall have a just balance, a just ephah, and a just bath. Now, in order to say (laughs) that it's going to be just, um, and they talk about a just balance, what they would do is they would lead the weights on a scale. So you could cheat a person, but it would actually look like they're, they're getting an even deal. Uh, so when it says here, adjust weight, the Lord is saying, no, this side is going to be just as equal to this side. They're going to get an equal rate. No, no more scale. I would liken it today to um, um, fixing a gas pump. There's reason state inspectors come in to make sure you're getting a gallon of gas, and it's really a gallon of gas. Because you can manipulate it. So it says you're getting a gallon of gas when you're really only getting seven-eighths of a tank or something like that. And that's the idea here. All that shenanigans, all that's going to be done away with during the millennium. Um, verse 12, the shekel shall be by uh, be 20 geras, 20 shekels and 25 shekels and 50 shekels shall be your uh, mina. Uh, this is the offering which you will offer. You shall give one-sixth of an ephah for a homer of bread and one-sixth of an ephah for a homer of barley. Uh, the ordinance concerning oil, the bath of oil is one-tenth of a bath from a core. These are all ancient measurements, of course. A core is a homer, and a tenth bath, for the tenth baths are homers. So, you know, a lot of this is strange measurements, but he's laying out here um, what you're going, what the uh, payments plan is going to be. Verse 15 and one lamb shall be given from a flock of 200 from the rich pastors of Israel. Uh, these shall be for grain offerings and burnt offerings and peace offerings to make atonement for them, says the Lord God. All the people of the land shall give this offering for the prince in Israel. And um, it reminds me that now they're bringing this portion in and evidently, it's being given unto David um, as the prince. And the, and the people of the land shall give this offering for the prince in Israel. It reminds me when the, when, um, the people clamored for a king. And uh, it really upset Samuel. And he said, okay, but this is what's going to happen if you want a king like everybody else. Well, he's going to start drafting your young men, and he's going to start taxing you. And then you're going to have to give a portion, and it's going to go to him. That's sort of what this reminds me of here. And it displeased um, Samuel that they wanted a king, and that they had rejected the Lord from being king over them. Verse 16, all the people of the land shall give his offerings to the prince in Israel. Then it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. He shall prepare the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, the peace offerings to make atonement 
for the house of Israel. So they bring it in, uh, give it to David, and, and David now is in charge of overseeing the offerings that are going to be taking place for a thousand years. Now I know we stopped and I read that um, four or five paragraphs from uh, Dwight Pentecost about why is there sin offerings in the millennium when Jesus already is our high priest and he's already been a sin offering. Uh, We're going to be talking about Passover here in just a little bit when we get to verse 22. And yet they're going to observe Passover. So the question is, why do this? And the only logical, common-sense answer that that um, we can come up with that makes any sense at all is it's something that we do today where the Lord says, if you can call them sacraments or, or whatever title you want to put on them, but there's two things he's asked us to do as far as what we would deem a ritual, and that is communion and being baptized. Uh, they have nothing to do with your salvation, but yet they're things that Jesus asks us to do. So whenever we have a baptism, the first question I pose is, why should you be baptized? And the simple answer is, because Jesus said so. <laughs> and it's really that simple. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, and teaching them to observe all the things that I taught you. And those who believe, then baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So why do we baptize people? because it's part of the Great Commission. And so, in the same way, why are they having um, real sacrifices during the millennial kingdom for a thousand years? This is going to be going on continually, and uh, on and on and on. And the only explanation is that even though you're saved when you enter into this 1,000-year period of time, there's going to be reproduction. Uh, they, they'll still have human bodies. Thus, they'll have children. And those children will be born with free will. So if you've, we've learned one thing from studying the book of Ezekiel, it's what? The Lord uses a lot of object lessons to make his point. He was always telling Ezekiel and Jeremiah to do these crazy things to show, uh, to, to make his point. And so when we have these here, it is a reminder to those young people that God is holy and that um, um, his own son, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, when he came, became the Passover lamb. And when he said it was finished, it was finished. To tell us, it's done. You can't add anything to it. So we look at this, and it's nothing more than an object lesson for those young people that have free wills who I suppose they'll go through adolescence, I don't know. <laughs> you know what adolescence, if, you have, if, you're a, if you're a parent, you know what adolescence is all about. I mean, God put adolescence in teenagers. You know why? Otherwise they'd be living in your house when you're 40 years old, that's why. It's just that, Dad, you're wrong, Mom, you're wrong, and I'm out of here, period. What for? I don't know. It's just i got to get out of here. And it's part of being an adolescent, and we all understand that. 
Is that going to be different with the human nature during the millennium? No. So what, what do you have? Well, God is holy, and he hates sin. And it really cost him his only begotten son. Um, and again, the picture, we have the picture there with Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, take now your son, your only son, you know, the one that you love. Holy smoke. Does that smack of John 3.16 or what? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do what with him? Well, I want you to take him in an offering as a burnt offering on the hills of Moriah. And I believe it's exactly the very same spot where Calvary, Golgotha, is today. It's the highest point. When you go to Jerusalem, there's seven mountains in Jerusalem. Mount Zion, Scopus, um, Mount of Olives. And, and this one, Mount Moriah, it goes up from the Temple Mount. And from the Temple Mount, the highest point of it, it starts at 742 meters at the Temple Mount. But when you get to the top of it, it's exactly 777 meters, and we call the top of that hill Calvary. So I think when when Abraham went to the hill, I don't think he went halfway up. I think he went all the way to the place that we call Golgotha today. And he even says so. After the Lord says, don't kill him, what Abraham does is prophesy, and he says, it shall be seen. You know, future tense. Someday you're going to see this acted out in the mount of the Lord. So he was talking about a future event where another father would go through with the act of offering his own only son. And object lesson. So... If um, let's get up to um, Passover, uh, we got to um, let's pick it up in verse eighteen. For thus says the Lord God: In the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. And the priest will take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorposts of the temple and on the four corners of the edge of the altar at the gateposts of the gate and inner court. And so you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who has sinned. So sin happens during the millennial, unintentionally or in ignorance. And um, you're driving into town, and the speed limit was 55, and you didn't see that it just went to 35, and you really didn't, and you're innocent, and you get pulled over. And the officer says, sorry, you're speeding. Oh, no, I'm not. I was just 55. Well, no, no, no. You just passed the side where it said 35. Well, I didn't see it. Well, you, and you can be innocent, but you're still guilty. It's an unintentional sin. So we have unintentional sins that are done in ignorance, but it's still a sin, and you're still going to get a ticket. And the cops probably think, a nice try. <laughs> Can't you do better than that? Uh, verse 20, and so you shall do on the seventh day uh, unintentional or in ignorance, thus you shall make atonement for, uh, for the temple. Now get this in verse 21. Now on the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall observe the Passover. A feast of seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. And um, I'll read through the rest of the chapter and then come back to this. And on that day, the prince shall prepare himself for all the people and a bowl for a sin offering. 
And on the seven days of the feast, he shall prepare a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bulls, seven rams without blemish, daily for seven days, and a kid for the goats daily for a sin offering. And he shall prepare a grain offering of one ephah for each bull, one ephah for each ram, together with a hin of oil for each ephah. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month of the feast, he shall do likewise for seven days, according to the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the oil. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. It tells us, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and in truth. So here they are. Of course, Passover was the last and the final plague that brought deliverance for the children of Israel. When the Lord said to apply the blood to the door lentils of the house, when the angel of death passes over, and I see the blood, no, the firstborn of that house won't die. But if there's no blood applied, then the firstborn, and the firstborn of everything in Egypt died. The firstborn son, if they had a cattle that had a male calf, that calf died. So throughout all the land, it says it was a great mourning. But it was that event that uh, Pharaoh had, had said, um, all right, you're out of here. And they were to remember that night from generation to generation to generation. But here we have it going into, for the next thousand years, they're keeping the Passover. But in so doing, what the teaching goes with it, that um, the prince, David, is going to say that this was fulfilled and that... Um, the Passover lamb was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. And I won't be a bit surprised if he uses the illustration of Abraham and Isaac as part of the teaching. What did we read last week in chapter 35 or 44? What was David's job? Go back to verse, no, 34. David's job back in verse 34, we know that David is going to be the one overseeing him. But if you look back, in verse 15, what does David do? He says, I will feed my flock. And I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek that what was lost and bring back what was driven away. In other words, he's teaching. And, um, you know, I think anybody that teaches likes like to use illustrations of some sort to make their point or put a map up so that you can see clearly what um, the Lord is trying to get across. So as we look at chapter 45, we find um, um, the districts, the living quarters for the priest, uh, for David himself, uh, the land, the borders, and then the offerings, the people will work, work the land, how much, how much everything is going to cost, the offerings that are going to be made, they will keep uh, the Passover, and they'll do this continually. It's something that will never be forgot. Chapter 46 is now going to take us into 
Um, let's read the first eight verses into uh, something that we call the year of Jubilee. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, the gateway of the inner court that faces toward the east shall be shut in the six, for six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened, and on the day of the new moon it shall be opened. Now the prince, that would be David, shall enter by way of the vestibule of that gate from the outside and stand by the gatepost. The priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings. Uh, he shall worship at the threshold of the gate, and then he shall go out by the gate, and it shall not be shut until evening. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the entrance of this gateway before the Lord on the Sabbaths and on the new moons. The burnt offerings that the prince offers to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish, and the grain offering shall be one ephah for a ram, and the grain offering for the lambs as much as he wants to give, as well as a hint of oil with every ephah. And on the day of the new moon, it shall be a young bull without blemish, six lambs and a ram, and he, and he shall be without blemish. And he shall prepare a grain offering for an ephah for a bull, an ephah for a ram, and as much as he wants to give for the lambs, and a hint of oil with every ephah. And when the prince enters, he shall go in by the way of the vestibule uh, at that gateway, and go out the same way. But when the people of the land before the Lord on the appointed feast days, whoever enters by the way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. So there's an order here. Things are being done decently in an order. And whoever enters by the way of the south gate shall go out by the way of the north gate. And he shall not return by the gate through which he came through, but shall go out through the opposite gate. The prince then shall be in the midst. When they go in, he shall go in, and when they go out, he shall go out. At the festivals and the appointed feast days, the grain offering shall be an ephah for a bull, ephah for a ram, and as much as he wants for the lamb, and a hint of oil with every ephah. And now when the prince makes a voluntary burnt offering or a voluntary peace offering to the Lord, the gate that faces towards the east shall then be opened for him, and he shall prepare his burnt offerings and his peace offerings as he did on the Sabbath day, and then he shall go out, and after he goes out, the gate will be shut. You shall daily make a burnt offering to the Lord of a lamb of the first year without blemish, and you shall prepare it every morning, and you shall prepare a grain offering with it every morning, a sixth of an ephah and a third of a hint of oil to moisten the fine flour. And this grain offering is a perpetual ordinance to be made regularly to the Lord. And thus they shall prepare the lamb, the grain offering, and the oil as a burnt offering every morning. Thus says the Lord God, if the prince gives a gift of some of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. But if he gives a gift 
of some of his inheritance to one of his servants. Now we're making a distinction between the, the prince's kids and servants. It shall be his, notice, until the year of liberty, um, called the year of jubilee, which after it shall return to the prince, but his inheritance shall belong to his sons, it shall be uh, become theirs. Moreover, the prince shall not take it, take any of the people's inheritance by evicting them from their property. He shall prov- provide an inheritance for his sons, for his own people, so that none of his people may be scattered from his property. All right, let's just stop right here and talk about those of you who have never studied or heard about what the year of Jubilee is all about. And the best way that we can explain it is just to go right back to it. And we need to turn to, um, um, what do we got here? We have Leviticus chapter 25, picking up in verse 8. The Lord had worked out a system so that the rich could never take advantage of the poor. He could never have you over a barrel if you were in dire straits. Eventually, the guidelines are going to be set up that when the year of Jubilee comes, no matter what kind of trouble you got yourself into and you had to sell some property and uh, it was, you know, this was your inheritance when you came into the land and, and you went through some hard times and you had to sell it. Well, the Lord set up something called the year of Jubilee. And um, it would be after seven, it would be after seven sevens or 49 years, seven Sabbaths. If we pick it up in verse eight, it pretty much explains itself. And now this is being implemented even during the millennial reign as it pertains to the king and his sons, well, it's theirs forever. But for his servants, um, well, let's pick it up in verse 8. This is the law of the year of Jubilee. Verse 8, And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years. And the time of the seventh Sabbath of years shall be 49 years. So it spells it right out. Of course, this smacks all over of Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks and how long a week was there was a year. So 70 times 7 would be 490 years and that's in Daniel chapter 9 and how long he would deal with Israel. Verse 9, then he will cause a trumpet on the jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the 7th month on the day of atonement You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all the land. So every 50 years, you count 50 years, they had this special uh, day of atonement. And when that would happen, it says, you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all of its inhabitants. It will be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his possession and each of you shall return to his family. So if you were a slave and you were indebted and um, you couldn't be a slave for life, the longest you could be a slave for was 50 years. And 
probably they had um, uh, probably closer to 10 or 15 or 20, whatever. But when the year of Jubilee came, you were no longer a slave to that person. You went back to your own family. Let's say you had to sell a portion of land, but that's your inheritance because you're from that tribe. You're supposed to keep it in the family. But you fall on some hard times. Uh, these days you get some lawyers to do their lawyer thing, and, um, and you can lose everything. Not, not, not with the laws of Israel. When the 50th year came, no matter what you owed, no matter how much in debt you were, the slate's clean, and you just simply went home. And that way, the rich didn't continually get richer and richer and richer, and the poor didn't get poorer and poorer and poorer and poorer. Everything was back to normal. So, well, now as he's going to lay out how you're not to take advantage of the year of Jubilee if you're going to buy a piece of property. So let's read a little bit farther. Verse 11. The 50th year shall be a jubilee to you, in that you shall neither sow nor reap what sows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a jubilee. It will be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. Now, If you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. But according to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the numbers of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price. And according to the fewer numbers of years, you shall diminish its price. So what you bought or sold all depended how close or how far away you were from the day of redemption when the books are wiped clean. Is everybody with me with that? And it was, it was a system where everybody got that, that um, second chance uh, to go back and it happened every 50 years. And it was an equality, an equity that would be amongst the people. Um, therefore, 17, you shall not oppress one another, which is human nature. If you're not saved, what do you do? You try to take advantage of a, of a guy if you can and um, get the best deal that you can and so on and so forth. But you shall not, that's not going to be a characteristic for God's, God's people. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you will fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Um, we could read on. I want to go down to verse 23. We might go here on Sunday. He's talking about the land and so on and so forth. But here is a verse that if you want to take anything home with you tonight and what's going on in the world today and current events and um, uh, the arguments of Israel building in the settlements and, and um, um, Palestinians say, well, it's our land and you can't build settlements on it and there's all this friction and uh, we're building up to the Ezekiel 38 war very, very clearly. Let's get it straight once and for all whose land it really is. We're talking about land being bought and sold here. Read verse 23. It says, The land shall not be sold permanently. Why? For the land is mine. It's my land. It's uh, not the children of Israel's. It's not anybody else's land. It's God's land. 
And he gave it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his descendants. But I like this. He said, you are strangers and sojourners with me. And all in the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption to the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his kinsman redeemer comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother has sold. And there you have the whole story of the book of Ruth. Um, um, uh, Naomi... Senior moment time. <laughs> kinsman redeemer time. Who's the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth? Boaz. Why couldn't I pull that out of the back of my head? It just happens. You laugh now. You wait and see. That's what my dad used to, that's what my dad used to tell me. <laughs> the whole book of Ruth is about a kinsman redeemer. He was a, he was a near relative. And he had the right to redeem the land. But he did it not because he wanted the piece of land. He want, Ruth went with the property. And so we have this wonderful parable of uh, the treasure in the field. That a man went out and sold everything that he had so he could purchase this field that had this wonderful treasure. And a lot of commentaries will tell you, well, that's a Christian coming to the Lord and giving everything he has. I surrender all. My next verse is, oh, no, we don't. <laughs> no, we don't. Who's the one who gave up everything? The Lord Jesus Christ took on the form of a servant. Did he need another planet to purchase this world? No. He's got galaxies. Well, what's so special about this place? Oh, there's a treasure inside. It's called his bride, the church. And so he purchased the planet, all of it, with his blood, not that he needed another planet. He could make them anywhere he wants to. But it was what's in the planet that was of value. That's the New Testament teaching, but the book of Ruth is the Old Testament picture. And here we have it said, if a kinsman redeemer comes along, he can redeem it. All right, we got a little sidetracked here, but I wanted you to understand what the year of Jubilee is. Let's go back to chapter 46. We're in, I think we left off in verse 19. Verse 19, then he brought me through the entrance, which was by the side of the gate into the holy chambers of the priest, which faces towards the north. And there are a place situated at the extreme western end. And he said to me, this is the place where the priest shall boil the trespass offering and the sin offering, where they shall bake the grain offering so that they do not bring them out into the outer court to sanctify the people. Then he brought me out to the outer court and caused me to pass by the four corners of the court. And in fact, every corner of the court, there was another court. And in the four corners of the court were enclosed courts, 40 cubits long, 30 wide. All four corners were the same size. And there was a roll of building stones all around them and all around the four of them. Cooking hearths were made under the stones. And he said to me, these are the kitchens where the, where the ministers of the temple shall boil the sacrifice of the people. All right, I've got a lot of numbers, but I'm going to put up on the screen again so that here we have the dimensions of um, even the details of how big the kitchen is going to be. So if you look at the key 
Um, on here, well, on the side there, points out where the, the kitchen corner is. And I believe if I remember from Sunday, it's out in the upper right-hand side. But I'm not sure. But the key there should point it out. Again, this here I think is helpful. But again, the detail, just over the top with the measurements and and um, even down to how big the um, the kitchen where the ministers of the temple shall boil the sacrifice of the people. All right, now we switch gears big time because we've left off with all the detail. And go, we have two major um, topics left. And this one really intrigues me, 47, 1 through... 12, I really look forward to seeing that one. And what we have here is the river from the temple. Now, when we get to the book of Daniel, and Daniel has, Nebuchadnezzar has his dream in Daniel chapter 2, and he sees all these kingdoms, and he sees the image that is there. And then after they get done describing the image, it says, out of nowhere came a stone, and it smote the image, and the image was scattered, and it was dust in the wind, literally. And out of it arose a great mountain. And that's precisely what's going to happen when the Millennial Temple is built. The city of Jerusalem is going to be elevated, and there's going to be a great plain around it. But then on top of the river, everything from the temple, we have the temple itself. Now we're giving, given detail about a river that actually flows. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east from the front of the temple, that faced east, and the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. And he brought me out by the way of the north, and he led me around out to the outside, to the outer gate that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. So try to picture this in your mind. Here's this beautiful temple. The dimensions of the outer outer wall are, are a mile square. But now you have from the temple itself, you have a little trickle of water, and it's starting to go down towards the east, um, which in, in Jerusalem would eventually end up in the Mediterranean Sea. But then it says part of it is going to go down towards the east. And let's pick it up there in verse 3. So you have two streams that begins small, one goes east and one goes west. And then when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubics at 1,750 feet. And he brought me through the waters and the waters came up to my ankle. So you're starting walking on, you know, your flip-flops. You could walk in a temple and it's that deep. And you go out 1,750 feet and all of a sudden that's up to your ankle. So it's getting more and more. And then, verse 4, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters, and the waters came up to my knees. So it's getting deeper. And he measured 1,000 and brought me out through the waters, and then it came up to my waist. That's another 715 feet. 
And again he measured 1,000, and it came, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep. So um, usually when we go to Israel, we go to the Tel Dan, Caesarea Philippi. It is the headwaters of the Jordan River. And where it starts out is um, oh, it's a beautiful little stream about wise at the, at the very beginning, about the length of one of our pews here, I suppose. And there's trout, and it's only about hmm, maybe four feet at its steepest part at its beginning. But it's, it's at the headwaters of, the, of, um, of um, what, would be, what we would call the Golan Heights. But it has other rivers that enter into it so that by the time the Jordan River gets to the Sea of Galilee, it's a whole lot wider than it was. And when we walk um, in, in the Tel Dan, the nature reserve, the ancient city of Dan, when we get there, I mean, it's beautiful. It's crystal clear. It's really moving on. And um, if we had time, in the old days we used to have time to do things like this. When I got, oh, five miles downstream, you get to the kibbutz Kafar Bloom, you could actually rent tubes. And then it slowed down a little bit, but you could go rafting, like we do on the Wolf here in Wisconsin. That was at least until this year. <laughs> and... My point is, there isn't other tributaries that are coming in here. This is supernatural, that what's what the Lord is doing. And these are living waters. And the farther that it goes out, the deeper it gets. Pick it up in verse uh, 7, when I turned around, um, uh, verse 6, he said, Settle man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and re- returned me to the banks of the river when... I returned there along the banks of the river were very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said unto me, this water flows towards the eastern region. It goes down into the valley and enters the sea. And when it reaches the sea, the waters are healed. He's talking about the Dead Sea. It's the lowest place on planet Earth. And um, I can't believe the evaporation. Um, It's dead for one reason. It has water coming in, but not anymore because the Jordan's nothing by the time these days, but it has no exit. And so here you have this huge body of water that we call the Dead Sea. Matter of fact, guys, go ahead and put up on the screen the first map that we had because we're going to be making reference to it in chapter 48. And let me just show you how this um, works here. There we go. You have in the north of Manasseh, in the area of Ephraim, we have the Sea of Galilee. And um, the Jordan here actually would go all the, all the way up farther. But then the Jordan goes all the way down into the Dead Sea. And you see where it's connected? Uh, you see where there's a little neck? towards the bottom of it, that doesn't exist anymore. That hasn't existed for at least the last 10 years. But it did exist in 79 when I went there. And my point is that because it's so hot and it's so low, the evaporation rate um, has created a sea that can have no life in it. And that's why they call it the Dead Sea. There is no, 
there is no life in it. Um, if we have a smart aleck bus driver and guide, he'll get real excited. He goes, a dolphin! And everybody looks. <laughs> and goes, gotcha. <laughs> no dolphins, there's no nothing <laughs> in the Dead Sea. It's dead. But when these waters that come from the temple reach the Dead Sea, that flows, it says the waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves where, where the river goes um, will live. There will be very great multitude of fish because the waters go there, uh, for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the, the river goes. It shall be that, that fishermen will stand in it at En Gedi. Well, I know En Gedi like the back of my hand. It's my, one of my favorite places, if not my favorite place in all of Israel. This is where David ran from Saul. It's an oasis. Um, it's called the place of the wild goats. That's what Gedi means. And when David was there 3,000 years ago, they still have goats there to this day. And there, isn't, there has never been a time that I've been at Gedi that I haven't seen this these goats that have existed since the time of David. But there's no fishing going on there. But they're going to spread their nets at En Gedi, and there will be places for the spreading of their nets. The fish will be the same kind as in the Great Sea. Now, that was a reference to the Mediterranean. So all the fish that are in the Mediterranean Sea will someday be, for a thousand years, um, at En Gedi, They'll finally be able to go fishing at Engedi, and all, and all of it will be um, healed. But its swamps and its marshes will not be healed. They'll be given over to salt. Well, that's all you see when you drive around, when you're driving down to the Dead Sea. Um, the latest thing is is the sinkholes that are opening up, and. Um, uh, when it says it's been given over to salt, uh, the evaporation from that area evidently is not going to be healed, just the waters waters itself. Along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. The leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their waters flowed from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. So verses 1 through 12, this river that flows from the temple. Now, from here to the rest of the book, and we'll just read through it, because basically what we're, we're given here is the dimensions and the proportions to the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Let's finish up the book of Ezekiel. Thus the Lord God said, These are the borders by which you will divide the land as an inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel, Joseph will have a double portion. You shall inherit it equally with one another, for I have lifted my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers, and this land shall fall to you as an inheritance. This shall be the border of the land on the north from the great sea, um, the Mediterranean, by the road to Hethon that goes to Zedad, Hamath, Berathon, Sibram, which is between the border of Damascus, which is the border of Hamath, to Hazar, 
Hadakan, which is on the border of Haran. And thus the border shall be from the sea to Hazar, Eden, and the border of Damascus. And from the north, northward, it shall be the border of Hamath. This is the north side. And on the east side, you shall mark out the border between Haran and Damascus, and between Gilead and the land of Israel, along the Jordan, and along the eastern side of the sea. This is the east side. The south side, toward the south, shall be by, be from Tamar to the waters of Meribah, by Kadesh, along the brooks to the great sea. This is the south side, towards the south. The west side will be by the great sea from the southern border until one comes to a point opposite Hamath. This is the west side. And thus you will divide the land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. It shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and for strangers who sojourn among you, who bear children among you. So they're having kids during the millennium. They shall be to you as native-born among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall be that whatever tribe the stranger sojourns, then you shall give him his inheritance, says the Lord God. In verses 13 to 23, what we've just read, is the dimensions of all the 12 tribes. The rest of chapter 48 is going to get more detailed and tell you which tribe gets what. And um, what I wanted to do as a side with the study of Dan, I can't do tonight because of my time, uh, but I will bring it up again on Sunday. Now these are the names of the tribes from the north. So he's starting at the very top. Among the road to Hethlon at the entrance of, of uh, Hamath, Hazar, Ian, at the borders of Damascus, northward. In the direction of uh, Hamath, there shall be one portion, and the first one mentioned is Dan, for his east to its west side. Now, just for a teaser, and I won't get into the study because it would take longer than I can have time for tonight. When you get to Revelation chapter 7, you have the 12 tribes that are supernaturally sealed, And the Lord says to take 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, which is 144,000. And when you read the list, Dan is not there. Okay? So I'm just going to leave that there for now. But he's the first one mentioned here. Why? You're just going to have to come Sunday to find out. What can I say? Verse 2. The border of Dan from the east side to the west is a portion of Asher. The border of Asher from the east side to the west, a portion of Naphtali. From the border of Naphtali from the east to the border of one portion of Manasseh. The border of Manasseh from the east side to the west, one portion for Ephraim. By the border of Ephraim from the east side to the west, a portion of Reuben. The border of Reuben from the east side to the west, a portion for Judah. From the border of Judah from the east side to the west shall be the districts which you shall set apart 25,000 cubics in width and length the same as one on the other portion from the east side to the west, with the sanctuary in the center. The district that you shall set apart for the Lord shall be 25,000 cubics in length and 10,000 in width. To these, namely to the priests, shall be the holy district. That section in white on the map up there belongs to the north. 25,000 cubics in length, 
and on the west 10,000 in width, east 10,000 in width, and on the south 25,000 in length. The sanctuary of the Lord shall be in the center. So the center of of, uh, the land dedicated to the priest, the temple will be the heart of it. It shall be for the priests and for the sons of Zadok, who are sanctified, who have kept my charge and did not go astray when the children of Israel went astray, as the Levites went astray. And this district, district of land that is set apart shall be to them a thing most holy by the borders of the Levites. Opposite the border of the priests, the Levites shall have an area of 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 cubits 10,000 cubits wide, its legs shall be 25,000, and its width 10,000. And they shall not sell or exchange any of it. They may not alienate this best part of the land, uh, for it is holy to the Lord. The 5,000 cubits in width that remain along the edge of the 25,000 will be for general use by the city, for dwelling and for common land, and the city shall be in the center. These will be the measurements, the north side, 4,500 cubics, the south side, 4,500, the west side, 4,500, the west side, 4,500. The common land of the city shall be to the north, 250 cubics, and to the south, 250, to the west, 250, and to the, well, I got the east and the west mixed up, but all 250. Now verse 18. The rest of the length alongside the district of the holy portion shall be 10,000 cubics to the east and 10,000 cubics to the west. It shall be adjacent to the district of the holy portion and its produce shall be for food for the workers of the city. And the workers of the city from all the tribes of Israel shall cultivate it. The entire district will be 25,000 cubics by 25,000 cubics, four square. You shall set apart the holy district with the property of the city. The rest shall belong to the prince on the one side and on the other of the holy district of the city's property next to the 25,000 cubics, the holy district, as far as the eastern border. And westward, uh, 25,000 as far as the, the, the western border, Adjacent to the tribal portions, it shall belong to the prince, and it shall be holy district, and the sanctuary of the temple again will be in the center. Moreover, apart from the possession of the Levites and the possession of the city, which are in the midst of what belongs to the prince, the area between the border of Judah and the border of Benjamin shall belong to the prince. So again, When you look at the map, you have Judah being north and Benjamin being south. And these would have been um, uh, the two tribes during the times of the kings. Verse 23, let's finish it up. And the rest of the tribes from the east side to the west of Benjamin shall have one portion. And by the border of Benjamin, from the east side to the west, Simeon shall have one portion. From the border of Simeon, from the east side to the west, Issachar shall have one portion. By the border of Issachar, from the east to the west, Zebulun shall have one portion. From the border of Zebulun, from the east to the river, Gad shall have one portion. 
And by the border of Gad, on the south side toward the south, the border shall be for Tamar, to the west of Meribah by Kadesh, along the brooks to the great sea. This is the land which you shall divide by lots as an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. And these are their portions, says the Lord God. So when it says by lots, what tribe are you from? Well, here's the portion that the Lord has given us. Let's just pick Reuben. And let's just say you're a Reubenite. Well, how do I know what chunk of land I get? Well, through the casting of lots. And evidently, the Lord has laid out what tribes go where, but now we're talking about individuals, who gets what and how they get it. All the Bible tells us here is divided and portioned by lot. From 30 to 34, we have the gates of the city. Uh, These are the exits of the city. On the north side, measuring 4,500 cubics, that's a mile and a half. The gate of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one gate for Judah, one gate for Levi. Now, what's interesting about this here is the gates in the New Jerusalem carried the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And again, here's another rabbit trail. If we had time, we could go to the book of Revelation and show some connections here. Verse 32, and then, then, and then there's other gates that are named after the 12 apostles. And on the east side, 4,500 cubics, three, cube, three gates, one gate for Joseph, one gate for Benjamin, one gate for Dan. On the south side, measuring 4,500 cubics, three gates, one gate for Simeon, one gate for Issachar, one gate for Zebulun. And on the west side, 4,500 cubics will be three gates, one gate for Gad, one for Asher, one for Naphtali. The last verse that sums up the book of Ezekiel, all the way around shall be 18,000 cubics, and the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. This is a seven and a half mile square. And... um, the name of the place is called The Lord is There. And we've just concluded the book of Ezekiel. Praise the Lord. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you as we've finished the major, what we call the, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Lord, you're so detailed. And as David observed your creation and he looked at his own form and said, Lord, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And the details of your creation go beyond description and definition. And so, Lord, as you've laid out what it's going to be for a thousand years after the curse is removed on planet Earth, we see that you've laid out in extreme detail, number one, that the land is yours, and that um, it'll always be yours. So Lord, we thank you for this study in Ezekiel as it sets the stage for us for the book of Daniel. And um, we're grateful, Lord, that you've um, given us the whole counsel of God. 
And um, we just pray tonight as we've gotten into some of the wonders that will happen, the healing of the Dead Sea and fishing at En Gedi. It's just mind-boggling. Anyway, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word. And um, as we conclude tonight, we just pray that you continue now to go before us as we enter into that season between here and Daniel. We'll be in the holidays with Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Lord, bless that time, and we thank you for your word that you've spoken to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.